0: Welcome to this Touch podcast activity, which has been recorded for Touch Oncology. In this podcast, Dr. Rebecca Heist, a leading expert in lung cancer, discusses the role of antibody drug conjugates in the treatment of patients with advanced non-small cell lung cancer, including their structure and mechanistic rationale, the latest clinical trial data, and the optimal management of patients receiving antibody drug conjugates. This activity is funded by an independent medical education grant from AstraZeneca. This activity is jointly provided by USF Health and Touch IME. Welcome. My name is Dr. Rebecca Heist. I'm a medical oncologist at Mass General Hospital in Boston. And today we will be talking about evaluating second-line treatment approaches in advanced non-small cell lung cancer, the role of ADCs. So first, ADCs in non-small cell lung cancer How can we link structure with mechanism of action? There are three key components of ADCs, and you see this in this diagram here. First, there's the antibody. This helps deliver the conjugated payload to a specific disease site by targeting a tumor-associated antigen. The linker is the bridge between the antibody and the payload and controls the release of the payload, hopefully as much inside of the cancer cells as possible. And finally, the cytotoxic payload. This is the chemotherapy warhead for destroying the cancer cells. There are many characteristics that we think about when we think about each of these components. And so what are the characteristics of an ideal antibody for an ADC? This includes high binding affinity to a target antigen, low immunogenicity, fast internalization, and low molecular weight. There are many different kinds of antibodies in the human body, and among the IgG subclass, there are four subtypes. These, in general, have a long serum half-life, but they have slightly different characteristics in terms of complement-dependent cytotoxicity, as well as FCT receptor avidity. In general, IgG1 is the most used antibody in ADC development. This is due to its solubility, the long serum half-life, and the binding affinity for FC receptors. So the primary ADCs in development for the treatment of patients with advanced lung cancer are based on the IgG1 architecture. What about the antigen target? There are multiple characteristics that we think about for an ideal antigen target for an ADC. The antigen should be overexpressed on the cancer cell surface as compared to healthy cells. There should be an external-facing binding site. The antigen should be absent from the systemic circulation. And the antigen should internalize the bound ADC into the cancer cell. Many antigen targets are currently being developed and used in ADCs in lung cancer. These include HER2, HER3, trope 2 CCAM5, MET, Nectin-4, tissue factor, and EGFR, and there are many other antigens that are being explored in ADCs as well. Next, the linker molecule. Characteristics of an ideal linker molecule for an ADC include the prevention of aggregation of the ADC, and also the linker should prevent premature release of the payload in the systemic circulation. There are both non-cleavable and cleavable linkers that are used. The non-cleavable linkers tend to be theoesters. These tend to be more stable in the systemic circulation because the drug release mechanism really relies on lysosomal degradation for release of the payload. The cleavable linkers are t- tend to be acid, labile, peptides, or disulfides. These are less stable in the systemic circulation, and the drug release is based on physiologic conditions in the tumor, tumor environment. Shown here is an example with trastuzumab deruxtecan. This is an example of a cleavable peptide linker And you can see that in response to protease digestion, the cytotoxic payload gets released. There are many factors that affect the stability of payload release. This can include conjugation site chemistry, the length of the linker, as well as steric hindrance at the cleavage site. And finally, the cytotoxic payload. What are the characteristics of the ideal payload for an ADC? The cytotoxic payload should be potent. It should be stable in the systemic circulation. There should be high solubility, low immunogenicity, small molecular weight, and there should be a functional group that allows for conjugation as well as membrane permeability. There are many different cytotoxic payloads that are currently being used in ADCs in non-small cell lung cancer. These include microtubule inhibitors, such as mtenzene, raftenzine, and vodotin. There are also topoisomerase I inhibitors that are used, such as direxican and govotecan. So how do ADCs work? This cartoon is a schema that shows the ADC comes in. The antibody binds to the target antigen. The ADC is internalized into the endosome. There's payload release of the cytotoxic warhead um, inside the lysosome. And then the cytotoxic warhead exerts its effects. And there can also be bystander effect where the warhead diffuses out of the membrane to neighboring cells. So when we think about the ADC structure and how it affects efficacy and toxicity, there are various considerations to keep in mind. First, in terms of efficacy, the ADC uh, can possess both direct and indirect anti tumor activity. The drug to antibody ratio is important to think about, and we generally think about a higher DAR as being associated with higher efficacy. And the bystander effect, where the cytotoxic payload diffuses out to neighboring cells, can have an impact on efficacy as well. However, there are safety considerations to take into account as well, and some of these factors act a bit like a double-edged sword. So, for example, a high DAR, which we think of as associated with high efficacy, may also have an impact on the adverse event profile. Again, the bystander effect where the cytotoxic borehead diffuses out to neighboring cells and affects cell kill is great if you're killing sick cancer cells, not so great if you're killing normal healthy cells. Premature payload release in the systemic circulation is a factor that affects safety, And inadequate link of stability, which is related to that, also affects safety and adverse event profiles as well. So why would we use ADCs in patients with advanced non-small cell lung cancer? Well, in terms of the systemic therapies that we have, the benefits of chemotherapy are limited by a narrow therapeutic index. ADCs, because the antigen-independent uptake of the cytotoxic payload in antigen-negative cells is limited, this contributes to a wider therapeutic index that we see with this class of molecules. Chemotherapy is non-selective, and this can lead to systemic toxicity. ADCs combine the specificity of monoclonal antibodies with the cytotoxicity of chemotherapy to deliver the payload directly to the cancer cell. The blood-brain barrier can limit intracranial drug delivery, and the bystander effect that we see with some ADCs may facilitate the antiproliferative activity behind the blood-brain barrier. And finally, all of our treatments, chemotherapy, targeted therapy, immunotherapy, are linked to acquired resistance, and ADCs may offer a therapeutic benefit in patients with acquired resistance to current therapies. So what are the mechanisms of resistance to ADCs? A variety of mechanisms have been described. Some of these may be related to the antigen. They may be reduced antigen expression on the cancer cell surface. There may be a truncated form of the antigen ectodomain that limits the ability of the ADC to bind. Tumor heterogeneity in terms of the expression of the antigen may affect resistance as well. Some resistance may be related to the payload. There may be increased expression of drug efflux pumps. There may be mutations in the payload target itself affecting its ability to do its work. The mechanism of action may be affected, and this may relate to impaired internalization of the ADC itself or impaired function of the lysosome in terms of degrading the ADC. And finally, there may be activation of signaling pathways that affect the ability of these ADCs to exert their effect. There are multiple ADCs that are currently in development in advanced non-small cell lung cancer. These include drugs such as trastuzumab-emptazine and trastuzumab deruxtecan, which are HER2-directed ADCs. And you can see in this table the antibody, the linker, and the payload, as well as the DAR of each of these ADCs. Patritumab deruxtecan is a HER3-directed ADC. Sazutuzumab, govitecan, and dedoponumab deruxtecan are both TROP2-directed ADCs. Tulosov is a CMET-directed ADC, and trastuzumab-reftanzine, again, Camp 5 I'll note that trastuzumab deruxtecan is the only ADC in this table that currently has an FDA approval, and this is for patients with advanced lung cancer with HER2 mutations. There are many trials looking at these ADCs that are currently ongoing, um, and this includes the range of trials from phase one to phase three. And again, approved in lung cancer is trastuzumab deruxtecan in HER2 mutant non-small cell lung cancer. So in summary, ADCs comprise three key components. There's an antibody, a cytotoxic payload, and a linker molecule. The ADCs target antigens that are expressed on cancer cells compared to healthy cells. And each component of an ADC can be modified to try to optimize the therapeutic benefit. One ADC, deruxtecan, has been approved for use in patients with pretreated non-small cell lung cancer with HER2 mutations. And there are many, many more ADCs that are in clinical development. In this section, we'll be talking about ADCs in the second-line setting, exploring the latest clinical trials data. So first, the latest data for trastuzumab direxican. Remember, this is a HER2-directed ADC. And here we see the schema for the DESTINY LUNG-01 study. In this Phase two study, adults with advanced, non-squamous, non-small cell lung cancer with either HER2 overexpressing or HER2 mutant lung cancer were enrolled. Patients with asymptomatic brain metastases were eligible, and all patients had to have a good performance status. Patients were treated with IV trastuzumab direxican at 6.4 mg per kg every three weeks, and the primary endpoint of this study was the overall response rate. In the population with HER2 mutations, the ORR was 55%. In terms of the safety profile, the most common, any grade drug-related AEs were nausea, fatigue, and alopecia. And there was a 26% rate of drug-related ILD in this study. And so here we see the data for destiny lung O2. In this phase 2 study, patients with HER2 mutant advanced lung cancer who had previously received platinum chemotherapy again, stable asymptomatic brain meds were allowed, patients had to have good performance status, were enrolled in two different doses of trastuzumab deruxtecan: the 6.4 mg per kg that we saw with the needle on L1, and a lower dose at 5.4 mg per kg. And here we see, in terms of the primary endpoint, the confirmed overall response rate. At the 5.4 mg per kg dose, an overall response rate of 49 percent. At the 6.4 mg per kg dose, an overall response rate of 56 <clears> percent. <throat> Importantly. The adverse event profile looked better with the lower dose. The rates of grade 3 or higher treatment-emergent adverse events was 39% at the 5.4 dose, 58% at the 6.4 dose, and the drug-related ILD rate was 13% at the 5.4 mix-per-cake dose, while it was remaining at around 28% at the 6.4 mix-per-cake dose. We saw recently the latest data from the Destiny Lung-01 and Lung-02 studies, and these were pooled data looking at intracranial activity. This was a post-hoc analysis, pooling the data in both of these studies and looking at patients with and without brain mets. And you can see from Destiny Lung-02, the 5.4 mg per kg dose level, there were 32 patients with brain mets. And then pooled between Destiny Lung-01 and O2, the 6.4 mg per kg dose level, 54 patients with brain mets. And here, we see the efficacy in the CNS, the intracranial overall response rate, at the 5.4 mg per kg dose level of 50 percent and at the 6.4 mg per kg dose level of 30 percent. And at both of these dose levels, a reduction in the brain size, lesions um, from baseline in the vast majority of patients. We're going to move on now to dataponamab direxican. As a reminder, this is the trope 2 ADC. And here we see the tropion pantumor O1. This was the dose escalation and expansion study across multiple different solid tumor types, and specifically there was an expansion in advanced non-small cell lung cancer. There was no minimum level of trope-to-expression required for this study. Patients with clinically inactive brain metastases were eligible, and again, patients had to have good performance status. Patients were treated with three different dose levels at this expansion of datapodamab four mg per kg, six mg per kg, eight mg per kg given every three weeks. The primary endpoint was safety and tolerability and determination of an MTD with, and determination of a recommended dose for expansion. The maximum tolerated dose uh, defined in this study was eight mg per kg every three weeks, and the six mg per kg dose was selected for development. And you can see here the response rate at the six mg per kg dose, 26%, the duration of response, about 10.5 months, median PFS, 6.9 months, and median OS, 11.4 months. We saw recently data from Tropion Lung 05. This is a phase 2 study specifically looking at datapunumab durexacan in patients with actionable genomic alterations. Again, patients with advanced lung cancer who had progressed on or after at least one targeted kinase inhibitor and after platinum-based chemotherapy, who had an actionable genomic alteration and good performance status, received IV datapotumab at the 6 mg per cake dose. The primary endpoint of the study was confirmed overall response rate, which was 36% in the study as a whole. The majority of patients in this study had EGFR mutations, 57%, and in that population, the confirmed response rate was 44%. The most common grade 3 or higher treatment emergent adverse events included stomatitis, anemia, and elevated amylase. The rates of drug-related ILD were relatively low. They tended to be low grade, 3% at grade one or two. There was a 1% grade three or higher ILD reported in this study. Tropion lung one is the latest data with datopotamab deruxtecan. As a reminder, this is the study schema shown here. This was a phase three study. Patients with advanced non-small cell lung cancer were enrolled, both actionable genomic alterations, and the absence of actional genomic alterations were allowed, patients had to have good performance status, and asymptomatic or stable and treated brain meds were eligible. Patients were randomized to one of two arms, the IV data diroxican at 6 mg per kg given every three weeks, or IV docetaxel 75 mg per meter squared given every three weeks. And you can see the uh, results here. The overall response rate for data diroxican was 26% while the overall response rate for docetaxel was 13%. The median PFS in the overall population was better in the Datapodumab-Diroxacan arm, 4.4 versus 3.7 months. This PFS benefit was driven by the non-squamous histology. And in the non-squamous subset, the median PFS was 5.6 months for Datapodumab-Diroxacan, while being 3.7 months for docetaxel. This was not seen in the squamous cohort, where in patients with squamous histology, Datapotamab-Diruxtican did not do better than docetaxel. What about safety? This slide shows the treatment-related AEs that were seen with this study, and you can see in light orange the AEs that were grade 1 or 2, and in dark orange are the grade 3 or higher AEs. With Datapotamab-Diruxtican, you can see that the most common AEs that were seen included stomatitis, nausea, alopecia, decreased appetite, and asthenia. Most of these were low-grade, and you can see the rates of ILD here 5% grade 1 or 2, 3% grade 3 or higher. With docetaxel, you can see the most common AEs included alopecia, neutropenia, anemia, diarrhea, asthenia. Neutropenia, notably the grade 3 or higher, was significant at 23%. And the rates of ILD here, we do see a small but notable uh, rate of ILD with docetaxel as well. In terms of uh, dose delays, reductions, interruptions with these drugs, we can see that with dataprotamab there was a 17% rate of dose delay, 11% with dose, d- docetaxel. 20% of patients receiving dataprotamab had a dose reduction compared to 29% with docetaxel. 8% of patients on the Dato DXD arm had discontinuation of the study drug due to a treatment related AE as compared to 12% on the docetaxel arm. And the rates of death due to treatment related AEs was low in both arms. Sacituzumab gobetican is another trope 2 ADC. Here we see the IMU13201 study. This was a single arm expansion of an initial basket trial. Here, patients with metastatic squamous or non-squamous non-small cell lung cancer were enrolled. Patients had to have at least one prior line of therapy. There was no preselection on the basis of trope 2 expression Patients had to have good performance status. And they received IV-sacitutumab govetikin either at 8 mg per kg or 10 mg per kg on days 1 and 8 of a 21-day cycle. The primary endpoint was a confirmed overall response rate, and that was 17% in this study. The most common, any grade AEs, regardless of causality in all patients, included nausea, diarrhea, and fatigue. And the most common, grade 3 or higher adverse events, regardless of ca- causality, included neutropenia, leukopenia, and pneumonia. Let's move on to patritumab direxican. This is a HER3-directed ADC. And here we see the schema for herthena Lung 0 one In this phase 2 study, patients with advanced non-small cell lung cancer with EGFR activating mutations, either an exon 19 deletion, or l 58 r mutation, were enrolled. Patients had to have at least one prior EGFR TKI and at least platinum chemotherapy in any sequence as prior therapy. Patients with asymptomatic, clinically inactive, or treated brain metastases were eligible, and patients had to have good performance status. There was initially an up-titration regimen of pletritromatorexacan, which was ultimately stopped, and most patients in this study enrolled at the 5.6 mg per kg every three-week dose level. And here we see the efficacy data among all patients. The overall response rate was 30%. This response rate was quite similar among patients with a history of CNS metastases as well as patients without a history of CNS metastases, and the disease control rate was quite high across the board, 70% or higher. We saw recently data regarding the intracranial responses in pituitumab dibrexacan. And in the study, the phase two study that looked at IV patritumab at 5.6 mgs per cake, there were 95 patients with brain meds at baseline. And among those, 30 had not had irradiation to the brain med. And we can see the CNS response rate down below. Among all patients with baseline brain meds, a 20% CNS response rate. Among patients with non-irradiated baseline brain meds, a 33% response rate. And again, the CNS disease control rate overall, very high, 80% and 77%. What about the safety data in the population as a whole? You can see, again, in light orange, the grade 1 to 2 adverse events, and in dark orange, grade 3 or higher. And the most common AEs that we see here, nausea, thrombocytopenia, decreased appetite, neutropenia, constipation. There is a rate of ILD that we see with this drug as well, one patient who had a grade 5 ILD event. What about dose interruptions? About 40% of patients had a dose interruption on study. 21% 21% had a dose reduction. There was discontinuation only in 7% and a 2% rate of death related to treatment-related a- AEs in this study. We're going to move on now to talisatuzumab-vidotin. This is a MET-directed ADC, and the Luminosity study is shown here. This is a phase 2 study looking at patients with advanced non-small-cell lung cancer who received prior lines of therapy, and cMET overexpression was measured by IHC. Patients had to have good performance status, and there was both a cMET high where the IHC expression was at least 50% 3 plus, or a CMET intermediate, where there was a range of 25 to 50% 3 plus IHC expression. And all patients received TALESO-V at 1.9 mg per kg every two weeks. And here we see the response rates in the EGFR wild type subset. Among those with high MET overexpression, the response rate reported was 52%. Among those with medium intermediate expression, the response rate was 20, 24%. We have seen, in a press release, updated results on these data that adjust these numbers somewhat, and we're looking forward to seeing the full data set soon. What about safety in the population as a whole? The most common, any grade AEs reported are peripheral sensory neuropathy, nausea, and and hypoalbuminemia. There were grade 5 AEs that were possibly related to TolisoV. This included sudden death in one patient and pneumonitis in one patient, and both of these deaths occurred in the squamous population. And then finally, tusimitimab, the reftanzine, this is a CECAM-5 ADC. In this study, patients with previously treated non-squamous lung cancer with high or moderate ccam 5 expression were enrolled, received IV tusimitimab, reftanzine at 100 milligrams per meter squared every two weeks. The primary endpoint was response rate. In the moderate expressors, a response rate of 7%. In the high expressors, a response rate of 20%. The most common treatment-emergent adverse event in patients treated included corneal events. There are many ongoing clinical trials of ADCs in non-small cell lung cancer, and this table shows just some of them. This shows some of the second-line approaches that are being looked at. So, implications of the data that we reviewed. More research is required to really optimize patient selection, to determine what the optimal sequence of ADCs really is, develop strategies for patients with acquired resistance, and to confirm the signal of activity that we're seeing in patients with brain metastases. In this section, we'll be talking about ADCs in clinical practice. How can we optimize treatment for patients with advanced and metastatic non-small cell lung cancer? Shown here are multiple different ADCs that are currently in clinical development or being used in non-small cell lung cancer and their antigen targets. As a reminder, trastuzumab deruxtecan is the one ADC here that in lung cancer currently has an FDA approval, and that is specifically among patients with lung cancer with HER2 mutations. It is, though, also used and has been studied in uh, HER2 overexpression, as well as amplification. We also see trastuzumab emtansine. This does not have an FDA approval specifically in this indication, but is listed in the NCCN as a potential recommendation used in HER2 mutation, HER2 amplification, and overexpression. Patritumab deruxtecan is an ADC directed against HER3. Tatopotomab deruxtecan and sazatuzumab-gobetecan are ADCs directed against TROP2. Talisatuzumab-bodotin is an ADC directed against cMet. And tuzaminumab reftanzine is an ADC directed against CCAM5. Can we refine selection of patients for ADCs? And when we think about things, we, we think about is there a biomarker that we can use? And trastuzumab deruxtecan gives us a good example of a biomarker directed approach. We know that in non small cell lung cancer, there are about 1 to 4 percent of patients who have a HER2 mutation. A slightly higher proportion of patients, 2 to 30 percent, have HER2 overexpression. And when we look at the Destiny Lung one study, this included patients in two different cohorts, HER2 mutated advanced lung cancer or HER2 overexpressing advanced lung cancer. And to the left, you can see in the HER2 mutant population an overall response rate of 55%, a disease control rate of 92%. In the HER2 overexpressing lung cancer population, an overall response rate of 27% and disease control rate of 69%. The approved dose, as you know, is 5.4 mg per kg. There, the overall response rate in the HER2 mutant population was 49%. And trastuzumab deruxtecan gives us an example of an antibody drug conjugate where we can use a biomarker, in this case HER2 mutation, to really select who is going to have the most benefit. However, it can be difficult to actually find a biomarker. Tastuzumab-govatecan and the trope 2 ADCs, in general, we think of as a biomarker agnostic approach. We know that there's high levels of trope 2 expression in lung cancer. This has been reported to be about 64% in adenocarcinoma, 75% in squamous cell carcinoma of the lung, where there's trope 2 overexpression. But when we look at the efficacy data, there's not a clear correlation between trope 2 expression and efficacy. In the IMU 13201 trial, there was no preselection based on trope 2 expression. The overall response rate, as you see, was 17%, with a clinical benefit rate of 43% but there is no correlation between the patient outcomes and the level of trope 2 expression. And it's unclear at the current time whether we can use TROP2 as a biomarker, as the studies so far have not shown a correlation between response and trope 2 levels. So patritumab deruxtecan, this is a HER3-directed antibody drug conjugate. And remember, this drug has been studied in patients with lung cancer with resistance to EGFR or TKIs. But when we look at the HER3 itself and HER3 expression, all tumor samples in this study, in the phase one study, demonstrated HER3 expression, but confirmed responses were seen across a wide range of baseline HER3H scores. So, no clear correlation between the level of HER3 expression and efficacy. And in the phase two data, again, this confirmed that there was efficacy in responses seen with patritumab deruxtecan independent of HER3 expression and also across many different mechanisms of EGFR TKI resistance. Sometimes, though, overexpression does matter. And we see here examples with Taliso V and Tusumitin Mav Reftanzine. You see the high CMET expression, 35% response rate, with the intermediate, 23% response rate. And then with CCAM5, high CCAM5 expression, 20% response rate, moderate CCAM5 expression, 7% response rate. And so antibody drug conjugates such as this suggest that the level of overexpression of the target antigen may be important when we think about, should we be selecting based on specific biomarkers? We also select based on toxicity, and we should think carefully about toxicity and how it occurs and why it occurs. And payload-mediated off-target mechanisms drive the majority of ADC toxicities. Shown here is a schema showing one of the many ways that off-target toxicity can occur. There can be premature deconjugation of the cytotoxic payload from the ADC that then passively diffuses into non-target healthy cells, causing cell death. There may also be nonspecific endocytosis, and here the intact ADC may contribute to off-site delivery of the payload, again causing cell death in a non-target healthy cell. Receptor-mediated endocytosis can be seen. Here, we're talking about uptake of the intact ADCs into healthy cells through binding to FC or C-type lectin receptors. This ADC then is internalized into a non-target healthy cell, and the payload release leads to cell death. There may also be target-mediated endocytosis. Here, the ADC is internalized into a healthy cell through binding of the target antigen that's expressed on the cell surface. And again, then the ADC exerts its effect on a non-target healthy cell. Bystander effect may also occur, and here this can exacerbate the off-target toxicities through increased diffusion and distribution of the payload into normal tissues. So let's think about the adverse events that have been reported with ADCs. And one thing to note is that the spectrum of adverse events is not just constant across these various ADCs. They all have a slightly different AE profile. Shown here is is a diagram showing the gastrointestinal effects that are commonly reported. And to just orient you to this figure, uh, in gray is the uh, sastuzumab govatican data, in dark orange, telesov, in light blue, trastuzumab deruxtecan in light orange, petrotumab deruxtecan and in very dark, navy, datapotumab duroxacan. And you can see the most common any grade AEs that are GI in nature include diarrhea, constipation, nausea, decreased appetite, stomatitis, and vomiting. And when you look at the distribution of these AEs among the different ADCs, you can see that they congregate slightly differently. For example, diarrhea, the rate is highest with Sazituzumab-Govatecan. Stomatitis is something that seems relatively unique to Datapotumab-Diruxtican. And when you look at the rates of grade 3 or higher AEs with at least 5% incidence, you can see diarrhea and nausea are the ones that we see with Sazituzumab-Govatecan, Stomatitis with Datapotumab-Diruxtican. What about hematologic side effects? We can see cytopenias with these ADCs: anemia, thrombocytopenia, leukopenia, neutropenia, and you can see the rates of these by the different ADCs. Again, color coded in the same way. And here I'll note that we see an absence of really much in the way of hematologic AEs with datapodamab deruxtecan as compared to some of these other ADCs that are shown here. What about the rates of grade three or higher AEs that are hematologic in nature um, with at least five percent incidence? You can see anemia, thrombocytopenia, neutropenia, leukopenia, all seen, um, and again, relatively fewer cytopenias seen with dataprotumab as compared to some of these other ADCs where we do see cytopenias, and it is something we need to be aware of. Pulmonary AEs can happen. We know that ILD is an adverse event that can happen. Specifically, we see this reported uh, with trastuzumab deruxtecan, and dataprotumab We see a rate of pneumonia with trastuzumab deruxtecan. In terms of grade 3 or higher, we see pneumonia with sastuzumab of a T-CAN. And then other constitutional symptoms, such as asthenia, fatigue. Alopecia is one that's important to know about and to warn your patients about. Um, anorexia or rash. We can see that the range of AEs that's seen is different, and we really need to pay attention to which ADC we're using to think about which AE should I be watching out for. For example, we see with tilis B, there's peripheral sensory neuropathy and hypoalbuminemia as a uh, common anti-grade AE that's seen, not seen so much with the other ADCs. And then common constitutional AEs reported. Uh, fatigue is one that we see quite a bit with ADCs, as you might expect. There are potential class effects of the cytotoxic payload regardless of the antigen target. And so when we think about things, we think of the r MMAE, for example, has been associated with cytopenia, such as anemia and neutropenia, peripheral neuropathy, and skin toxicity. MMAF, associated with ocular toxicity, thrombocytopenia, hepatic toxicity. Among the main DM1 has been associated with thrombocytopenia and hepatic toxicity. DM4, ocular toxicity, cytopenia, such as neutropenia and anemia, or peripheral neuropathy. And then the campotekians, Durexican associated with pulmonary toxicity, globotekian, with neutropenia and diarrhea. The toxicities are not always predictable. Two ADCs with the same payload, similar linkers, similar antigen targets, similar DARS, can have different toxicity profiles. And it's really important to know the AD profile of each ADC as you're using it so that you can manage it the best for your patients. Let's talk a little bit about ADC-associated ILD. This is something that's been reported across phase one, two, and three trials. And you can see here with trastuzumab, deruxtecan, any grade ILD reported at 13%, grade three or higher, 2%. With dataprotumab, direxican, any grade ILD at 8%, grade 3 or higher 3%, and patritumab, direxican, 5%, any grade ILD, 1%, grade 3 or higher. And as you're using ADCs such as this, consideration of this is important so that we can minimize the risk of the impact of ILD. How do we do that? One is to screen. We need careful patient selection so that we are screening patients appropriately for treatment with these drugs. And we also screen during treatment. We need regular clinical assessments to exclude ILD. Scans are a key part of this. So radiographic scans are fundamental for the diagnosis of ILD. We prefer high-res CT scans of the chest, and we should have a baseline scan as is repeat scanning every 6 to 12 weeks. Synergy. We need to synergize with the patient and the care team. We need to educate patients so that they know what to watch out for. We need to involve a multidisciplinary team to manage the ILD once it's suspected. Suspend, the ADC should be interrupted if ILD is suspected, and restart only if it was asymptomatic ILD that's fully resolved. And then steroids are the backbone of treatment, and the dose of steroids is really adapted to the grade of the toxicity. It's important that we balance efficacy with safety and quality of life. And when we look at different dose levels of drugs, as was done in the tropion Tumor O1 study, this is what we're thinking about. We're thinking about how can we get the best efficacy results while we maintain the AE profile in a way that's manageable for patients. And here we can see the response rates across different dose levels that were tested. We can see the rates of grade 3 or higher treatment emerging adverse events. And based on this composite data, the 6-mig per kg dose was determined to have the optimal benefit-risk ratio. So future considerations for ADCs and non-small cell lung cancer. When we think about how we treat a patient with non-small cell lung cancer, if a patient has in their tumor heart heart 2 mutation, we would do first-line systemic therapy. And then at progression, we have options of ADCs. Remember, trastuzumab deruxtecan is approved in this setting. trastuzumab emtansine is another HER2-directed ADC. There are studies looking at in patients with advanced lung cancer with HER2 mutations, can ADCs such as this be moved into the first-line treatment setting? And this is still an open question. And then other advanced non-small cell lung cancer, Should we be looking at other levels of overexpression, other mutations, to think about some of these other ADCs, or in a biomarker agnostic fashion, thinking about the use of some of these ADCs? And here, these are not approved, but they're currently in clinical development and being tested actively. So when we think about the future, one question that always comes up is, can these ADCs be moved in the first-line setting? And there are multiple clinical trials looking at this, um, and this shows just a few of the trials that are currently ongoing. So in summary, ADCs can be selected for use both in a biomarker-guided and biomarker-agnostic approach, and this depends on the specific ADC that we're talking about. There are multiple mechanisms of off-target ADC uptake that are thought to drive the majority of ADC toxicities. The toxicities are not always predictable. Similar ADCs with similar structure can have different toxicity profiles. The five S's are important to think about when we think about minimizing and managing ILD. And there are recommendations in place for managing ILD when it's suspected. And the role of ADCs is rapidly evolving in both the second-line setting as well as the first-line setting. And I expect that we'll see much new data in the months and years ahead. Thank you for listening to this Touch podcast. You can access more content on this topic at www.touchoncology.com.